this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. From the border of liberty and prosperity and the highway to the north, this is Safety Wars for Tuesday, November 1st, 2022, also known as All Saints Day. We don't really have, uh, no, I'm up here in the northern hemisphere. We're, we're at like the peak, right, here in New York, southern New York, of the leaf changing season for autumn. And if you're up here, go out and get it. If you're New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Delaware, and up, I think up north, north of here is pretty much over, or you're get, getting the tail end of it. It really is a pretty time of year, and it's, you know, some of the mornings I walk out and it's like freezing cold out. I'm like, son of a gun, I got to go and get a hat. So uh, enjoy. Uh, remember, we got another two or three more weeks here in southern New York of nice weather. Then anything could happen, right? And I always tell myself, this is going to be the last year I'm not go- I'm going to be working outside all winter long. And sure enough, I always fail on that. So we're looking to change that a little bit. So what are we talking about today? I know the person who was just on uh, it was the regulatory agenda mixdown was the uh, thing on how it was on lockout tagout and how OSHA regulations have not been updated in like 40 years, specifically uh, with uh, the 1910 and I believe it's 147 standard lockout tagout. We talked about that last night. I know uh, we had a little technical issue with timing here uh, with the software uh, where it was about a minute and a half slow. I don't know why, but it was about a minute and a half slow. And you might have, that might have been gotten cut, cut off where, for example, uh, hydrogen fuels for forklifts, right? Uh, right now that's a big thing with fuel cell technology, uh, really are, is not included in the forklift training stuff either or the powered industrial truck, as we say in, the, in uh, OSHA speak. So there's a lot of stuff out there that really needs to be updated. It's, uh, it's true. I mean, a lot of stuff. One of the things I could see right off the bat is what, what we just went through, biological safety. Really important. Needs, uh, needs to be gone over, needs to be reviewed a little bit more. Uh, we're still working in the general duty clause for a lot of this stuff. And we're, you know, we dealt with a temporary standard and then lawsuits and everything else having to do with COVID. Uh, now, with that stuff, right, we, let's see. We had the anthrax cleanups 2001. We had SARS in like 2005. And then two years later, we had. MRSA and some other things. And then we had a couple of years later, we had Ebola and then, and every couple of years we're getting stuff coming up with biological stuff. It would probably make sense that we get some type of permanent regulation or standard or procedures, something. So we don't maybe have like 1.1 million people dead in the next time. One of these things hit, we can try to mitigate that. And I know that's a little bit cold, but uh, too bad. You know, it's a cold business here, unfortunately, uh, when we're out there saving lives in the safety field. And let's not forget that. That is what our job is, is to save lives as safety professionals. We're going to go right through here. We're uh, uh, So what uh, we're going to do is we're going to have a couple of stories on uh, 
safety on stuff, our regular news. And we're going to have some commentary in the middle of this, some extended commentary. Then we're going to move on over into some introduction to industrial hygiene because we had industrial hygiene in the news today. Whether you knew it or not, we did have industrial hygiene and specifically indoor air quality today over in LAX. So something has to be mentioned here about industrial hygiene uh, today. Uh, It's sort of like a black art, for lack of a better word. For lack of a better word, it's more of an art than anything else in a lot of the applications. I know that an industrial hygienist is going to say, yeah, we're based on science, Jim. We're all about science. Well, you need some professional judgment in there also, and some experience goes in there. And uh, because if you treat everything as a science and everything as an emergency, guess what? You're going to lose credibility real quick, and you're not going to be able to fight that safety war so effectively with that. So Tesla... Uh, has, is on trial in California and it hinges on a question of man versus machine. So there's a manslaughter trial. Basically, this is what it is. A guy was operating a Tesla, allegedly, a couple years ago, and it was self-driving, at least partly self-driving. As I recall, this was uh, from a couple of years ago and technology has advanced. And basically, he got into an accident and he killed somebody was basically what he was allegedly the driver, allegedly this thing. And again, everyone is innocent until proven guilty and all this stuff gets litigated. And this is all alleged and everything else. I'm not assigning blame or anything else. So don't stick to the SEC on me or anything like that. But from a safety thing, right, autopilots, right, uh, now who's responsible, the human driver or the autopilot? I don't know. They're going to figure that out. But let's remember something here. We covered this on a story fairly recently on DWI and DWI technology, breathalyzers that are going to allegedly going to eventually be in cars. We have, uh, we have a lot of potential here with this technology where you're taking out the human part of this, putting it into, human, into uh, AI. And however this evolves, you, we have a good chance here on cutting down on accident, pardon me, accidents, car accidents and everything else because you're taking the human out of this and putting it into it. The problem here with machines is this, garbage in, garbage out. So there's pros and cons for everything. I'm sure eventually things will go, uh, will work, get work their way out for the better, God willing. And I can see a lot of potential here for self-driving cars eventually. I see it Going into the, I see it first in rural areas, interstates, things of that nature with trucks, which, uh, you know, you're putting truck drivers out of work with that. That's not uh, such a good thing, but I could see it going with that. But more importantly are the shipping industry. I believe Rolls-Royce was, uh, uh, I wrote an, I read an article about four or five years ago, Rolls-Royce uh, was uh, developing uh, technology, it's not the car company, it's the other Rolls Royce, they used to be one, but now they're separate, uh, was developing ship technology where you would go and have a ship completely run on autopilot. That's where you're not risking the crew and it would be, uh, uh, it would be a little bit better. So you would have, uh, in a sense, where you have a ship that, and you take it out of port with a regular pilot 
get out 10 or 15 miles past the uh, international uh, border, right? The, from the water. And then you go in and, uh, and then you go, once you're in international waters, the crew comes off the ship and then you just send it on its way. And then it stops 20 miles from where it needs to go. And lo and behold, another crew cuts on, mans and pilots it into the port. I don't know. That's what they're going to do. I think that this is coming. This is going to happen. They already use this technology. Where do you think they use this? Satellites. So eventually, I think it's going to come to cars. I don't know if it's going to be in my lifetime. But what we're trying to do is reduce human error and putting in a system in place. New Jersey. And by the way, these stories, the first three were sent in by a very prominent listener that everybody here mentioned. He didn't give me permission to mention his name. That everyone knows on this show. New Jersey lawmakers want to ban automakers from charging subscription fees for built-in car features. Uh, and this is as a result of BMW's move to charge monthly fee for like heated seats. And people are pissed. Lo and behold. Yeah, people are looking for an excuse to be pissed nowadays. This is the latest one. And they, they're considering nickel and diming it and customers and you now this a la carte feed type of stuff. Oh, well, heated seats, uh, you, you know, all this stuff. I don't know. It's very frustrating that we have a lot of stuff going on here. And this is what they're worried about, our heated seats and cars. I'm sorry, I'm going to issue my little... Am I in the swamp yet? Yeah, I think I'm in the swamp. Right? So, uh, and this is not only BMW. Toyota and General Motors are also making similar moves. With GM telling investors it aims to generate more than 10 times as much subscription revenue in 2030 as it did in 2021. Now, it was pointed out to me today on another radio show that... What's the future in the automobile market and the oil market? Hmm. Let's think about this now. Isn't there a state that recently put in a ban on cars? Yeah, there is. This is called California. And what about the uh, banning oil? No, because you don't have cars, right? Meaning internal combustion cars. They want to move to alternative fuels quote-unquote alternative, but then does the alternative fuel then become the mainstream fuel because you are not don't have gasoline-powered or diesel-powered vehicles, so therefore, are they now the alternative? I don't know. I, I'm all, it's all very confusing and hard to keep up with at times. But is it possible that these car companies, I know they're going to be losing a lot of market share here, and to other companies like Tesla, uh, uh Lord, uh, Polestar is another one, and they're not going to be able to replace that business. So they're looking to, uh, for no, going from internal combustion to all these other things, they're not going to be able to replace that income. And you think that it's that they want to go and charge you as much as possible now, and because later on they know, hey, take the money and run. Later on, they are not going to get moved up, or they're going to have to change their business model, and it's a little bit risky. Same thing with the oil companies. The oil companies know, hey, our largest state, which if it were an independent country, would be a pretty uh, big country, California. 
right? You're getting rid of gasoline. That's a huge part of their market. So maybe they're raising prices now. Could it, I know this sounds a little bit conspiratorial, uh, a little bit swampy again, right? But wouldn't it be uh, maybe there's more going on here with this? I don't know. Maybe there needs to be some type of investigation. Four teens killed in a crash, possibly linked to TikTok car theft challenges. This is out of Buffalo. This is a story from last week that uh, got by me. But uh, essentially, uh, we have this thing out there with a TikTok challenge where Hyundai vehicles and Kia vehicles are getting targeted for certain models, model years 2010 to 2021, that people are, are able to, uh, again, these are usually a Hyundai and the Kia are not the top end cars. And it's not like you're buying a seventy-five or eighty thousand dollar automobile all the time, but the cheaper end entry level cars, right? Things maybe they don't have all the features, all the bells and whistles, and everything else. Good reliable cars. My hun, my uncle got a half a million dollars out of his Hyundai Excel. Right, and he only went through one clutch in that entire half a million, uh, half a million miles, which is incredible to me. It was it was a thing called stick shift or manual transmission? So we know that these cars are made well, really well, but they may not have all the bells and whistles. And apparently, the anti theft technology or safeguards that are in other cars are not in here. And the so-called Kia Cat Challenge first posted it over this past summer shows how to hotwire a Kia and Hyundai car cars, the USB cord, and a screwdriver. So these cars are now being stolen and are targeted for stealing and joyriding. Okay. How does this, obviously, we have the obvious thing with stealing cars and everything else. And, hey, uh, well, that's obvious, right? That's like a safety and security issue. But is it a human and organizational performance type issue? What's safety? Safety is capacity. And you're adding capacity. Safety is not the, no, safety would not be necessarily uh, no cars being stolen. Security wouldn't be necessarily no cars stolen because you get one car stolen, all of a sudden we're not safe. No. But what's safety and what's security? You're adding things into the system. You're increasing capacity. You're increasing resilience. So here we have things not being included in anti-theft devices, uh, anti-theft devices in cars. Thing, the way things are designed. So now we're going to design, they need to design, my professional opinion, design the vehicle, right, to be less prone to stealing. It's not going to prevent all thefts, but think of it that way. I call it this way. And since I got on this hop journey from the beginning of COVID with uh, our friends here at the uh, Safety FM and Radio Big, is... I look for hop everywhere. I look at creating capacity in the system. I look at making things safer by creating capacity, creating resilience and everything else. And that's why I think where this needs to go. I look for it. How would we make this safer? How will we do this without relying on the human being to make it safer? The workaround that they're suggesting here is you want to talk about this? Okay, you're going to love this. They want to go back, and the, the new one of the news stories is, do you remember those anti 
auto theft devices from the 80s and the 90s where they were like steering wheel locks. I'm not going to mention the brand name, but uh, if they want to be a sponsor here, you can get a, send them over. I'll sponsor it. No, they go, we'll make a deal here. We'll get them to advertise. But you would put it on steering wheel locks. And my father, this first came out, a little bit of history here. My father was a very skilled tool and die maker. So was my brother, John, who passed away. My father passed away. And they had designed or came across a design for a homemade anti-theft device that was similar to these big commercial ones. And they went into the basement and they made a whole bunch of these as anti-theft devices and actually were and actually were selling them to friends and family, right? Again, in some cases, giving them away. And it's amazing that now they're saying, well, we should go back to this old technology with steering wheel locks, right, that the user puts on the steering wheel to immobilize it and immobilize the brakes on it, which was never a really good idea. So what are you, rely, what are you relying on that? with that. You're relying on the people. You're relying on the individual. You're relying on someone to get this right all the time. That's what you're relying on with these devices. And I think it's amazing that a car company would recommend that this is the workaround, apparently. This is what was portrayed in the news article. I'm not sure if it was they actually said this. And would you also be creating another problem with people just not being able to steer and just, hey, we're just going to Break in and just steer the thing. I don't know. Uh, not steer it and see how far we could get. It's not going to stop people from the original problem. So I don't know how big of a work around that may be. Uh, I, th- I tell you what might be a good thing uh, to do, which is, I'm sorry about the phone. Hold on. This is live radio. And, of course, it's probably a political call. It is the political season. Uh, No, it's not going to stop. Where were we? It's not going to stop the uh, theft of the cars, but it may cause another problem. So going back to this old technology, now you're relying on humans, and are you really solving the problem? And we're talking about getting, right, what's the root of the problem? Let's talk about root cause. What's the root cause of crime? Well, it's the individual choosing to do the crime. It's probably one conclusion you can have. Okay, now what the hell are you going to do about it? To change the human behavior is a, is a huge thing. Putting in incentive programs and everything in there is to uh, discourage this behavior. That's a huge undertaking. Right, I've been hearing since uh, I'm uh, a little kid. We got to get to the root cause of crime and go after those people. Doesn't that sound like the bad apple theory here? Maybe we have to have a system like a more effective education system, teaching people morals, values, things of that nature, common ones. I'm not talking religion, anything like that. To maybe, and then maybe go into and changing that culture of some sort that would cause people to go online. And it's not the culture of car theft or anything like that. We're talking the culture of going online, watching a TikTok video, and before that, and whatever is going to take over after TikTok. And then, oh, now we're going to go and do it. I mean, we've seen this crap happen in the last couple of years. You know, people eating laundry uh, 
uh, detergent pods and things of that nature. All saw on uh, that. I don't know. We have to figure something out. I'm all over the place, as usual. Let's go to a break. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com In the professional safety community, communication and planning are just a few keys to your program's success. The question many practitioners have is, where do I start? Dr. Jay Allen, the creator of the Safety FM platform and host of the Rated R Safety Show, has built a global foundation to help you along the way. Go to safetyfm.com and listen to some of the industry's best and most involved professionals, including Blaine Hoffman with the Safety Pro, Sam Goodman with the Hop Nerd, Sheldon Primus with the Safety Consultant, Jim Pozell with Safety Wars, Emily Elrod with Unapologetically Bold, and many others. As individuals, we can do great things, but as a team, we become amazing. Dial into safetyfm.com today and surround yourself with a powerful force of knowledge and support. OSHA recordables, first aid cases, catastrophic losses. You want answers? So do I. This is Jim Polzel with Safety Wars. So we are back. We're going to mosey on into some other stories here. We have not used the air raid siren yet, and we're not going to do it tonight. I'm not going to talk about nuclear issues tonight. Uh... I'm not allowed to have change there. Okay, you still want to hear it? You still want to hear it? I'm getting a text message. Someone wants to hear it. Okay, there you go. All right. So here we have 4 million New York City workers will now see how much jobs pay before they apply. I don't know. This, I have mixed feelings with this. So New York City, if you have a company of four employees or more, and they're gonna, there's a chance they're going to be working in New York City Right, because a lot of consultants in this area, they live in New Jersey and up in Rockland and Westchester County and maybe uh, uh, Western Connecticut, and they commute to New York City to do work. Or they may be out over Nassau and Suffolk County out on the island, and they go to New York City. And so I would think, now this says, well, this is a New York City law, but it's actually a lot more than New York City. We're talking New Jersey, pretty much all of New Jersey from Monmouth County north, uh, and uh, Southern New York, uh, the Southern tier like uh, no, Orange, Ulster, Rockland uh, County, and all the other surrounding areas. So this is actually going to be, might be impacting a lot more than 4 million private sector workers uh, here. Uh, but basically, starting today, you're going to require to list a salary range on all posted job ads, promotions, and transfer opportunities. It's supposed to promote some salary transparency from the employer. So a lot of states are doing this, and there's either have passed legislation or one legislation. I do have some mixed emotions here because I tell you what, back in the day, I got screwed real bad on some pay issues. 
uh, especially when I first got out of college back in 1992, because again, that was an election year. And we were all told this is the worst economy by one political uh, party. This is the worst economy in 50 years. Vote for us. And people bought it, and it was not true. And what happened was it got everybody you know, into this state of anxiety and employers decided, hey, we're not going to pay as much. That was my experience in the environmental health and safety field. And we got raked over the coals. And this is meant to put the pendulum back in the other thing. And people, employees are still getting screwed, right, because of negotiation type stuff. You're dealing with a huge multinational company, for example. They have more leverage to negotiate. And then you go in there and there were, uh, uh, you're under a confidentiality agreement. And now all of a sudden, uh, you're not sharing salaries. And now the, you're there. And let's say you're a protected class. Let's say you're a female, you're African American, you're any other, other uh, uh, protected classes. You're making one wage. And then someone else who's not a protected class is making 20% more and you're doing basically the same job. Patently unfair. I see this from one side. From the other side, all right, you're an employer and you have multiple employees, three, four, five employees, right, on your, on your end here. And you're giving the employees basically uh, different amounts of pay, maybe a dollar an hour here, dollar an hour there, $2 or $5. But, and I... Th- think i'm not a human resources guy i would think that you would have to really document why you are uh why you are uh uh paying someone whatever right so for example let's say that you have somebody with who's highly educated right out of college or a university right but zero experience that would be one pay level well, let's say you had somebody with very limited amount of uh, formal education. They're a phenomenal safety professional. They're phenomenal, or any other professional. They're phenomenal in what they do. They have 25 years worth of work, right? What happens? Should you be paying them more or less? This is a real world problem here. I would say I go by what my expectation is in the uh, job description. If you're managing people, guess what? If you're a manager, Guess what? Uh, you better be paying the manager a little bit more than your workers because it's not going to work out. Uh, one of the problems that I had when I was uh, before I got fully credentialed and everything else was and it happened at a oil refinery in New Jersey, where we had somebody I, I had, was a newly minted CHMM, newly credentialed CHMM, certified you know uh, certified hazardous materials manager. And what happened? People were pissed. Facility people were pissed. They said he's doing health and safety. Now we have to raise his billable rate because now he's credentialed. And when I got the ASP, forget about it, then I really had to, they knocked me up in the uh, oil refinery. Poor choice of words there. Now it's an issue. And you get people, uh, uh, the facility people were pissed. One, I blew some of their budgets inadvertently. I was only was a kind of arrangement where I they told me what I had to charge them, sort of thing, rather than me going through a proposal type thing. And now they got pissed, and the employees got pissed because now, oh, you're a safety guy doing this. But think of it from the other hand. They're not going to value you unless they know that you're getting paid something. 
Now there's going to be fallout to this. One of the fallouts is you're going to have companies just not hire anybody. Everyone's going to be a subcontractor, right? Or an independent contractor illegally and most most likely. Another fallout is this, where you're going to just have, uh, you know, oh, we're going to pay you. You want to make the same as so-and-so? Well, guess what? You're going to do the same amount of production as so-and-so. And that's not going to work out so well. You're going to do, you're going to be just as educated. And if you don't like it, you're going to have to fire some people, get rid of some people. That's what's going to happen. I mean, that's business. Business is in the business of making money. Business is in, not in that business. No, especially if you're reporting to stockholders. They want to, you to make money. They're not always into all of this fairness thing. They're very cutthroat, as we say here. I don't know. This has got to shake its way out. Some biological stuff. Normally we cover biological stuff today, but because of what was in the news with carbon dioxide and the lack of relevant information with carbon dioxide in the news, we're going to be talking about that probably tomorrow. But here's one story. There is a respiratory uh, RSV, right? This is a uh, uh, virus. What what is the, I did not write down what that stands for. Respiratory something virus, right? Respiratory syndrome virus. It kills tens of thousands of uh, children every year. And there is a vaccination coming out with that. And what does this virus cause? It causes cold system symptoms that all, also could lead to severe lung inflammation or infection in very young and old people. So people with developing immune systems and immune systems that are Im- impeded somehow, immunocompromised. So basically, there's a lot of hospitalizations, a lot of deaths. But uh, Pfizer announced that uh, they have a trial for a vaccination so that they can, that is going to be effective. They give it to pregnant women, allegedly, and then they are able to inoculate their children, right? Their unborn children. So uh, it's in, uh, uh, it's being advertised that it's going to be prevent more than three quarters of severe illnesses and disease. So basically, eventually, these severe respiratory illnesses are going to go away. They're going to get a whole thing if this is true, what they are reporting here, right? Uh, I don't know what kind of vaccination is it or anything else, but uh, basically uh, any reduction might be worth it with this. I don't know what the other, once they put it into practice, I don't know what the cons are here, this, but as usual, everything is in the pros here, Right. So 58,000 hospitalizations uh, a year from this, that's a big strain on the health system. And there are 100 to 300 deaths among young children. And uh, there's up to 120,000 annual hospitalizations for people over 65. I don't know mention the number of deaths and the information with that. But uh, but anyway, we're, it's something that we need to keep an eye on, and I hope it does work so we don't have people dying. That's probably not a good uh, thing here. There's a huge planet killer asteroid found, right, that they just found in the glare of the sun. So it's called 2022 AP7. It's about 0.9 miles long, 
wide enough that if it hit the earth, a wide swath of the planet would feel its effects. Yeah, I think so. Uh, and there were other uh, asteroids that were released recently discovered and the same thing. But basically what they're doing is from what I gather, most of these observations are optical, meaning that you're going to be using some type of uh, telescope or Maybe they're using a radio telescope, something like that, but these things are very difficult to see or detect because you're looking at the sun when you're looking at these. And they're finding much more types of these asteroids. I know the satellite technology is getting better and everything else, but this is a good thing. It's the safety of the planet, right? You don't want to have some type of asteroid coming in here, wiping out all of us here uh, with that. Uh, And a related story, I saw a movie last week on uh, Pluto. Okay, I'll give them a plug. The Pluto app uh, on the TV. uh, Asteroid from uh, 1979, 1980. And I remember watching it as a kid. I said, man, I haven't seen this since since it was on uh, TV back in the early 1980s. And apparently there is an arrangement made between uh, countries to nuke asteroids at least according to the movie and you can't always remember that it's just a bizarre movie uh with that so we're going to take a little break again and we will come back with one of our main stories here uh and our financial stuff for the day you are listening to safety wars tomorrow's safety today Is your safety training old, stale, and hackneyed? Is your safety trainer still preaching a warped version of behavior-based safety? How about safety training that actually addresses your hazards in your workplaces and is not standardized baloney from 25 years ago? Contact the Safety Wars team at safetywars.com or call Jim Polzel at 845-269-5772. Remember, if you're receiving this message, you are the solution to unsafe workplaces. Safety Wars is streaming now. SafetyFM.com And we are back. Let's talk a little bit about energy here. I mentioned this last week. I'll mention it again. I remember back in 19... might have been the week before, but back when uh, in the late 80s, you'd you'd see all... Right, then we had a... In 78 and 79, there was an oil shortage as a result of the Iranian revolution here. And you had an embargo on Iranian oil. And so but what happened was it wasn't really an embargo on it. What had happened was that I added a, another layer here, uh, another dealer. So it couldn't come directly from Iran, but as usual, the uh, it goes into the international market and then it gets sold. So what happened, and then it goes through, I'm not even going to pretend that I could really explain it. I understand it, but I couldn't really explain it, where you have all the oil goes into like an international market, right? Clearinghouse, and it gets purchased, all right? And I don't believe what I just saw. All right, so I have the story open here, and it has a video. And it had a shot of my uncle's property, which was pretty uh, via drone, which I thought was pretty weird. So um, 
because he owns property right next to a oil terminal in northern New Jersey. But so we have a embargo against uh, an embargo against Russian oil right now because of the what is it the war over the Ukraine. So what happened is uh, Russian oil is fueling American cars via sanctions loophole. So all that's going on is some countries are still accepting Russian oil and it's either getting processed and sent to the United States or it's uh, being got put through a middle person and then it eventually comes to the United States or another country. So basically this does a couple of things. Number one, it exports a lot of our pollution because oil refining is a, is a, a polluting thing, whether no matter what it is, you're going to have some kind of pollution. Number one, uh, number two is the uh, no. They're waiting for these contracts for the oil and everything to go through, and it eventually makes its way to the United States. So what we've done is we added a middleman, and when you add a middleman, you're going to add cost uh, to this. So this is an issue for our leaders have to that our leaders have to work out is what are we doing here with our energy policy? And it's very frustrating to me with that. So we'll talk a little bit about the financial stuff now. So basically, October closed out with a lot of markets high, right? They regained a lot of losses. But here we have Dow Jones Industrial, at 32,653.20, S&P 500 at 38,56.10, NASDAQ at 10,890.85, Russell 2000 is up 18,51.39, U.S. 10-year Treasury is trading at 4.044%. Gold, uh, we'll talk about gold in a minute. Bitcoin is hovering at 20,483.02, and crude oil at 88.58. So we're still getting to the mid to upper 80s on that. What about our precious metals? Precious metals here. We have gold at 1657, up slightly. Silver at 1990. Platinum at 966.80. Palladium at 1924.50. And that's where we're at. Now, we're going to move on to our, we're at, uh, according to my count here, we are at, uh, 8.38, so that's 38 minutes after the hour, no matter where you are, right? We're on the East Coast here, and now this is like, I was tempted to name this program like Safety Wars After Dark, right? Maybe if I ever do a late night show, that might be it, Safety Wars After Dark, but we're at Safety Wars Live, but what I want to remind everybody, right, and I thought it was pretty cool is that we are, we may be at 8 on the east coast but we are at afternoon drive time on the west coast which i think is pretty cool so right i could call myself the drive time host or if you're getting this on a podcast it could be the anytime host carbon dioxide this happened in california and again uh no we're in afternoon drive time in california Accidental carbon dioxide releases at LAX leaves four workers sick, including one in critical condition. So at LAX, for some reason, uh, some of these articles around here are describing it as like a 
a deluge of carbon dioxide, meaning it might be from a fire control system or something like that. And let's remember, how does that work? So you have a carbon dioxide uh, extinguisher or what have you, you, pardon me, you spray it on a fire and it interrupts the chemical reaction in the fire with the fire triangle or fire tetrahedron lowers thing and you don't have a fire anymore. You remove oxygen or you move, you may freeze it, lower the temperature, anything like that and you don't have uh, things. But one of the, one of the side effects here is that oxygen, uh, carbon dioxide, you're adding it to a system and usually in on the planet Earth right now, depending on where you are, between a rural and a urban area, somewhere between 300 and 550 parts per million. Now you're adding oxygen into the system, or obviously you're adding carbon dioxide, not monoxide, dioxide, into the system, and you're displacing oxygen, and you're also approaching some type of an exposure limit here. We'll go over that in a minute, but let me back up and say this. Carbon dioxide is from... Uh, typically from respiration. Uh, it could be from, we hear carbon emissions from cars uh, and from certain manufacturing processes, emissions, smokestacks, things of that nature. And it's, it's uh, chemically, for years, it was the preferred emission out of this stuff because it indicated that you had complete combustion of everything. Very simplified here, guys. This is extremely simplified but that's basically it. So what has ha- what happens is if you do not have complete combustion, like let's say with a internal combustion engine, a gasoline engine, what do you get? You get a related chemical, carbon monoxide. These are not the same. There are a lot of news reports out there, a huge number of news reports out there that got this wrong today. They said carbon di- dioxide and blah, blah, blah. And then the article says carbon monoxide. Easy mistake. A lot of people make that mistake. A lot of people who shouldn't make that mistake made that mistake. Inadvertently, I'm going to admit, inadvertently, I, I've said the wrong thing occasionally. But it's really important. Carbon monoxide poisoning, monoxide, is one of the most common poisonings in the United States and it's usually from people putting, like, uh, doing stuff like not cleaning their uh, uh, chimneys, like when they make a conversion from fuel oil to natural gas, or they're putting a engine inside a house, things of that nature. And they get called carbon monoxide poisoning. Uh, a famous entertainer, Weird Al Yankovic, lost both of his parents to that type of poisoning from uh, a faulty furnace, from what I recall. But anyway, I digress. Carbon dioxide. It's usually a couple of hazards here. Number one, it's a usually a compressed gas. In like dry ice type of uh, uh, things, or so for example, you have a, uh, a dry ice setup for uh, to make foam at like a wedding or a celebration, and it looks like the uh, the a happy couple is dancing on the clouds, right? And I know this is going to trigger some uh, 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 listeners, but uh, uh, I we all know somebody who 
Oh, I just got a message from somebody. You are plugging the Weird Al movie. Uh, no, 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 no. That, it wasn't the movie. That was real life. You could check it out on there uh, with the Weird Al story. But anyway, they, uh, uh, unless there's another movie. But anyway, uh, and by the way, thank you. That's the first message that I've received on this program, I believe, uh, from somebody. And, you know, I, I don't know. I'm, I have to put in a sound effect there. Come on. Bonfire. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But, so carbon dioxide. So uh, getting back to the story, we, I know somebody who was at a wedding in New Jersey and, they were, and the uh, DJ was in charge of the carbon dioxide setup. And what happened was, and you could Google this, it was a couple years ago, and he had dropped, rather than have this thing uh, properly handled. I'm not going to go into details here, but he dropped the carbon dioxide cylinder and it went off on the da- dance floor. And the people who I know were there, people got injured and everything. People who I knew who were there, I knew most half, probably half the people there I knew. Uh, and uh, this, they thought it was like uh, the Boston uh, Marathon bombing. And that's a story for another day here. I have some stories on that. Uh, but and it was just a horrible situation. So you have an immediate problem with pressurized carbon dioxide in a tank with compressed gas. But now let's talk here. You had in an ambient environment, an indoor air quality environment, you had carbon dioxide there, okay? And it was let loose. We don't know what the source is. Like with a lot of stuff, you don't know where it's from. So let's talk about this. Carbon dioxide, so what, uh, what are the exposure levels here? I had them right here. Okay, so there are three basic uh, exposure levels we use in the United States. In Europe, they have another one, which is, I believe, the DMK uh, expo- uh, exposure limits. But we have the ACGIH, TLV, American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, right? And... Their exposure level for this is 5,000 parts per million over eight hours. That's the TLV, the threshold limit value. The NIOSH has, and that's the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, that is in the uh, Division of the Centers for Disease Control. And if you've taken outreach training, you know that uh, the same day OSHA was created, same day NIOSH was created, basically, at the same time as the research arm for the government for occupational illnesses as far as the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. They have a 5,000 part per million limit over 10 hours, okay? OSHA, same thing, uh, right? They have the permissible exposure limit by set by regulation, 5,000 parts per million over 10 hours. The uh, SCS I'm looking at does not have the IDLH, but let's look up for it. Look it up. Uh, because that's usually in the NIOSH guide. So, IDLH for carbon dioxide. Memory serves you right. It's like 50,000. Nope, 40,000. So, 40,000 has an IDLH of 40,000 as an acute uh, uh, inhalation hazard, meaning short term. It's going to kill you at forty thousand uh, parts per million or more. What does IDLH mean? 
The common definition for ideal age is, is that in within 30 minutes, you're going to have a irreparable type of exposure for your body. So, for example, uh, you're going to die. That's an obvious one. In this case, one of the workers had a, uh, and this was a contractor, had an exposure that was near fatal because the original reports were that they were gravely ill. Now they're only critically ill. And it's an asphyxia, meaning it's going to prevent displaced oxygen and it's going to lower oxygen levels. Once you get below 19.5% in air, oxygen, you're going to start to get all screwed up. And once you get, start getting to like 10% of oxygen in the air, you're probably going to pass out and you're going to die. Uh, that, that's usually an ideal age type thing. And so the normal oxygen level is 20.9%. We, most people round it up to 21% or 210,000 parts per million. If you want more information on this, you could go and take a class with us, right? Uh, but essentially, there's a lot of stuff that goes on here with industrial hygiene. This is not something you would normally sample for except in an indoor air quality environment. So indoor air quality, what is, so we have the PEL and everything else here, the PEL stated. What if you're in a building with carbon dioxide, in a building, you're doing an indoor air quality audit. You're licensed by your jurisdiction or your credentialed like I am and doing indoor air quality work. You're going to have some basic parameters you're going to be sampling for. One of them is, Temperature, one of them is relative humidity, is going to be the other one. The other one is going to be carbon dioxide. Those are the three basic things. And you may throw in carbon monoxide or some other thing there, but you're going to have four different things you're going to be sampling for in an indoor air quality uh, uh, audit. We understand heat, and we try to get into a thermal, right, level where 90% of the people are going to be comfortable and the other 5% are going to be uh, always too cold, which is my wife, and the other 5% are going to be also my wife, too hot, very difficult, and being right there in the middle. And that's where you're going to be. We get that. All right. Humidity. Again, you're going to have humidity levels that you're going to have in a certain range. So, for example, I did a casino one time and I won't mention the name of the casino, but it was not Atl in Atlantic City. And the relative humidity there was something like 12%. Now, you're going to say, why would they have it so low? Isn't it supposed to be like 30 or 40% up to like 80%? Because if you have too much, you're going to have mold growth. And if you have not enough, it's not really comfortable. going to dry you out. And the reason I was given that why they had it so low was that uh, so you drink more. Right, I remember being in there all day, and they wanted me to sleep there. And I was like, "No, no, no, no!" I'm not. They were comping me room. I said, "I'm not going to get a comp room. I want off site." I mean, I mean, the my buddy Bob Shackleton, my assistant. We were we were like, "Okay, we're going down to the pharmacy, and we're going to go and use uh, what do you call it? Uh, uh, we're going to get all the nasal spray and everything because we're completely dried out." But this is what they cause to make people drink now. Carbon dioxide, back to the subject. Why would you have carbon dioxide? You're checking, and it's typically used for ventilation, 
right? So the current ASHRAE standard, American Society for Heating, Air Conditioning, and Refrigeration Engineers, their current level is 700 parts per million of what uh, uh, above what's going on outside. So you're doing an indoor air quality audit. You take measurements on the outside, and then you say, oh, wow, these are the measurements on the outside. And then you bring it on the inside, and you say, over 700, more than what we have on the outside, we're going to go and we're going to have, uh, uh, we're going to have, uh, uh, you know, uh, an exceedance. We need more ventilation. So that's basically what it comes down to with that. Uh, what are the warning signs? Are there any warning signs for, right, just regular carbon dioxide levels in air? And the answer is this. Well, well, is this. Let's say you're dealing with compressed gas. I think you know what that is. You're going to have some type of respiratory arrest and you're going to be collapsed and you're going to probably need oxygen at that level with that, right? And causes some type of uh, suffocation, may increase respiration and heart rate, that sort of thing. Okay, great. Have you ever been in a room and you say, man, the air in here is stuffy. Hmm. I think that we've all had that type of uh, experience. Oh, man, it's stuffy in this room. And you're like, oh, man, what do we do? Oh, we got to go outside and we got to go and, you know, do whatever. That is an indication that your carbon dioxide levels in your work, in your area, whether it's home or office or wherever, may be too high. Right, you're probably going to be somewhere around eight or nine hundred parts per million for that. With that, on up, and if uh, now, how do you measure for this? Right, that's not a good indicator because I have a different. No, I, I'm different. Cleft lip, cleft palate. As a result, I'm told I have moderate tinnitus because of it. I also have a hypersensitive sense of smell. And I probably in another life, I could have probably been like one of those underarm deodorant detector guys, right? That'd be a disgusting job, but a necessary job, right? Working for pharmaceuticals and, you know, perfume companies. But anyway, I, I, can, I can detect that when this happens, most people cannot. Hopefully now that I told you, now you're going to be able, you'll have that in your head. So that's really not an effective warning property here. So what do you need? You need some kind of detector for this, right? Carbon, there are carbon dioxide detectors are common out there. So if, uh, so if you have an indoor air quality audit done of your facility or of your house, in your house, what have you, this is one of the things they're going to be for uh, doing. Now, what, is, what are some of the other things with this? Well, the typical, I'm looking for at the uh, safety data sheet here. If not breathing, right, remove the victim to fresh air and keep at rest in a position comfortable for breathing. That would likely be, uh, no, if they're somewhat mobile in the rescue position, if you are in, no, if you're doing a first aid CPR type thing, where the person would be seated upright with their forearms on their thighs, that's usually a rescue position for breathing. However, if they're out, Guess what? At this point, you might have to give mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which means you're going to need a 
barrier, right, for that. The other thing is this. You go into a room, right? You go, this is what I think is probably going to be the result of this. Person went down, three people entered the room to help the person, and they were impacted by the carbon dioxide. That's how I see this scenario playing out here. I'm not involved in the investigation, but that's probably where they need to look. So at that point, you know, is it safe, right? If you're rendering first, is it safe? All right, safe or not? This is where the problem with this happens. There are no warning properties. How are you going to know whether it's safe or not unless you see a big fog coming over them? At that point, I'd be like, I'm probably not going to do that. I'm going to, right? And the other thing is this. If you find someone unconscious on the floor, what's your first thing to do? If you're trained in first aid CPR, it's called 911 or 911, depending on your, uh, depending on your, uh, uh, where you are in the country. You're going to call 911 first with that. So, Something to consider. So in summary, right, and we're getting towards the end here. Don't rush into a, an emergency. Call 911 first. Carbon dioxide, if you have it in your workplace, might be worth it getting some type of a alarm system for that, right, in case you have that. Train your people on first aid CPR how to handle this. If this is a hazard in your workplace, what do you have to do? Hazcom, right? Hazcom one of the most often uh, cited OSHA standards, right? Not so much anymore, but yeah, got to do a HAZCOM type thing where you have to train your employees for this and other any other chemical hazard in the workplace. All that goes into this. So if you're a facilities person, you got to be on your toes. You got to go out there and do this, do this kind of stuff. And I'm going to tell you, you need help with this. We have a whole network of people over here on Safety FM that can help you. Give us a try. You can call me at 845-269-5772 or jim at safetywords.com and I'll help you out on any of this stuff. And that's what we're doing. So for Safety Wars, this is Jim Pozel. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.